Welcome to ABC, Abergavenny Baptist Church, building faith and friendship. Is there a conflict between science and Christianity? Within popular media, it is often presented as though there is. They would claim that in the past, the church has opposed scientific discoveries. Uh, For example, the 17th century astronomer, Italian astronomer, Galileo, when he discovered that planets orbited the sun, including our planet, orbited the sun, there was an inquisition held in Rome, and he spent the last eight years of his life under house arrest. Others will state that the pure objective should results of science contradict the teaching and are in conflict with the teaching of the Bible. I have a quote uh, from H.T. Huxley, who's a biologist and an agnostic philosopher of the 19th century, And he says that the doctrine of evolution, if consistently accepted, makes it impossible to believe the Bible. And by that he probably means uh, Genesis chapter 1. But are these assumptions correct? Well, firstly, it is true that the church opposed Galileo, But it was also all the leading scientists of the day that opposed Galileo's uh, discoveries. Furthermore, Galileo remained a devoted, committed Christian. In fact, he states that uh, there are two big books, the book of nature and the book of supernature, the Bible. Furthermore, rather than Christianity being opposed to science, it was actually the Christian worldview, the Christian idea that the world was created by a rational God of order that created the right environment for modern Western science to emerge. And there are many, and there have been many prominent scientists who have been Christians. One example is uh, Johannes Kepler, who was an astronomer and a mathematician, and he's best known for his discoveries of the three principles of planetary motion. He was a deeply committed Lutheran. And this is what he says about his own scientific discoveries. He says, I was merely thinking God's thoughts after him. Isn't that a wonderful description of the scientific endeavor? Thinking God's thoughts after him. Another well-known example would be Sir Isaac Newton, who is probably most famous for his formulations of the law of gravity. He also wrote theological books, which he considered more important. Today, 
there are many Christians, committed Christians, who are scientists. In fact, within Britain, there is a society called Christians in Science, which has over 700 members. You can check out their website at cis.org.uk. But the real question, the real issue when we have these accusations that science is against Christianity is the idea that evolution has made belief in a creator God impossible or two, that evolution directly contradicts the Bible's teaching about creation. Before looking into that issue directly, I just need to make a few comments. Firstly, science is itself an evolving discipline. Science is a developing discipline. Mainstream science objected and opposed Galileo in its day. And contrary to popular belief, It wasn't the church and theologians who initially opposed Darwin. It was mainstream science. The church honored Darwin for his wonderful discoveries about how the world worked. In fact, they honored him, but at the end of his life, they actually buried him in Westminster Abbey. It was the mainstream science of the day that took 70 to 100 years after the publication of The Origin of Species, to finally start accepting Darwin's ideas. It's a developing discipline. A more current example would be uh, Newton's laws of physics were considered to be incontestable, irrefutable, until Einstein and others came along and showed that his laws broke down for the very, very, very small when quantum mechanics becomes relevant, or the very, very, very fast when relativity becomes relevant. Science is an evolving, developing discipline. To be honest with you, uh, I don't buy into evolution completely. I'm not a scientist, but I do think that within a thousand years' time, people are going to look back. In the year 3011, they're going to look back and they're going to say, do you know what people believed a thousand years ago in Britain? They believed in evolution. Can you believe that? You see, because by then, science would have developed and moved on as they make more and more discoveries. It's an evolving, developing discipline. Having said that, we need to say that evolution is the best answer to the question of origins that the scientific community has to offer at the moment. And they have some good science backing it up. Secondly, there's this idea that 
If you believe in evolution, you have to be an atheist. Now, of course, if you are an atheist, you have no other option but to believe in evolution. You have no choice. So if you're an atheist, yes, you have to believe in evolution. But it's simply not true that you have to be an atheist to believe in evolution. The simple fact that there are so many committed Christians who are scientists, who believe in evolution, in fact, some of them even teach evolution in universities. Uh, For example, I've already mentioned the, the Christians in science. They are committed evangelical Christians. You can check it out on their website but they believe in evolution. They believe that God created the world through the process of evolution. And therefore they see no conflict between the ideas of evolution and belief in a creator God. So does evolution contradict the Bible's teaching about creation? And how should we interpret Genesis chapter 1? Well, (laughs) at the outset, I need to state that there has never been a single way to interpret Genesis 1. There has always, since the very beginning of Christianity, going back to the second century, there's always been many different ways of interpreting the book of Genesis. And there are a variety of views about how to harmonize science and the Bible. The one view is a six-day young earth view. This view holds that God created in six literal 24-hour days, and that the earth is only about 6,000 years old. And they have some scientists who will back up their theories. Secondly, there is the six-day old earth views. Generally, they hold to what is called the gap theory. That there is a gap of billions of years between verses 2 and verses 3 of Genesis chapter 1. So in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it says God creates the heavens and the earth, and then you have a gap of a billion years, and then in verse 3, it says, and God said, let there be light. Then there's the view, which is called sort of something like the day-age view. And they point out that the Hebrew word for day has many ways that you can interpret it. It could mean a literal 24-hour day, or it could mean a long period of time. They claim that because the sun was only created on day four, that the author couldn't have been thinking about 24-hour literal days. And therefore they conclude that the days are long periods of time. And they also marvel at how this creation account in Genesis 
in some ways, is very similar to the ideas of evolution. I.e., plants first, then animals, then humans. It also needs to be pointed out that all these views and all their variants are held by deeply committed Christians. However, I have a slight problem with these ideas of trying to harmonize the Bible and science together. My problem is this, is that within their endeavor to create this harmony, they end up either abusing the Hebrew text, or they abuse science, or they abuse both the Hebrew text and science in order to create this harmony. What I suggest as the best way forward is to see the Bible and science as two separate disciplines. And that we hold them as complementary. And they mutually inform each other. Let me try and explain this with uh, hopefully a more neutral example. In, in Psalm 19, and reading from the second part of verse 4, we read that in the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. And over here, the psalmist is describing the sunrise and the sun's movement across the sky in poetic language. He uses two similes. Firstly, he likens the sunrise to that of a bridegroom coming out of his chambers in all his splendor. Secondly, he likens the sun movement across the sky as a champion, as a victorious athlete running his race. And Psalm 19, uh, despite all this poetic language, reflects a very basic understanding that the sun moves around the earth. Rather than the earth orbiting around the sun. This psalm, and many other references, for example, like Psalm 93 in verse 1, which states that the world is firmly established. It cannot move. Were used by Galileo's opponents to argue against him, to say that the earth is clearly stationary. And it's the sun and the moons and the stars that move around the earth. So what we discover here in Psalm 19 is that the Bible's cosmology is not scientifically true. But it still communicates truth. Firstly, Psalm 19 communicates phenomenological truth. 
And effectively, what that big word means is it's from the perspective of the observer looking, it is true that the sun rises and moves across the sky. When I'm sitting on a park bench with Victoria, and Victoria says, what a beautiful sunset. I love the way the sun goes down. I don't respond. That is not scientifically true. The sun does not move. It's merely the earth rotating on its axis. And the reason I don't respond like that is because Victoria is not using scientific language. She's using romantic language. And phenomenological language. You see, it would be inappropriate. It would actually be wrong to use scientific language in that context. So although the Bible's cosmology in Psalm 19 might be scientifically untrue, it is still phenomenologically true. More so, Psalm 19 is also theologically true. You see, the psalmist is using poetic language and phenomenological language, the, the language of an observer, in order to communicate profound theological truth. That the heavens, that the whole of creation is declaring the glory of God and more specifically, the sun displays the glory of God. So it's possible to hold that the Bible's cosmology, the idea that the the earth is stationary and the sun moves around the earth, as theologically true and phenomenologically true on one hand, while the scientific cosmology, the idea that the earth is actually a sphere rotating on its axis while orbiting around the sun, while the sun in turn has its own orbit within the Milky Way and so on and so on, is scientifically true on the other hand. So the Bible's cosmology is theologically true on the one hand, and the scientific cosmology is scientifically true on the other hand, even though they are contradictory. But we see them as separate disciplines. We see them as complementary, mutually informing each other. Similarly, I don't believe that Genesis chapter 1 is using scientific language. I believe it's using the language of poetry and more important, the language of theology. Let me just make a few very, very quick observations about why I don't believe Genesis 1 is using scientific language. Firstly, on day 1, God creates light. And we have day and night. But he only creates the sun on day 4. Three days without the sun. 
Secondly, on day two, God separates the water so that you have water below and water above. You have the ocean below and you have a heavenly ocean above. In the middle of these two oceans is what is called an expanse, which we call the sky, our atmosphere. What is the heavenly ocean? On day three, God creates vegetation, and vegetation grows. But the sun hasn't been created. How does the vegetation grow? On day four, God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, and he places them within the expanse. Remember, the expanse is the area between the two oceans. It's our atmosphere. It's the place that we later discover where the birds fly. The sun and the moon and the stars are there, not in outer space. All of this suggests to me that the author is not using scientific language. But rather he's using poetic language. Genesis chapter 1 is a highly stylized piece of writing. Way more stylized than the rest of the book of Genesis. I'm only going to give you one example. I think it will suffice. We've got a chart on, on, on the overhead. In verse 2, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Then, in the first three days, God brings form to the formless world. In the next three days, God fills the form so it no longer is the world empty. So there's a correspondence between day one and day four, day two and day five, day three and day six. In day one, God creates light. That's the form. In day four, he fills the light with the sun and the moon and the stars. In day two, he creates the sky and the sea, the form. In day five, he creates the birds and the fish to fill the form. In day three, he creates land and vegetation, the form. On day six, he fills the form with animals and humans. And then, the climax comes on the seventh day where God rests. God takes a Sabbath. In other words, this, the seven days is a perfect model for a working week. And it emphasizes the importance of having a Sabbath. Some of the, the theology coming through. I don't believe that the seven days was, was placed there to debunk Darwin in advance. So I believe that Genesis chapter 1 isn't using scientific language, but rather is using poetic language in order to make profound theological points. The most obvious, of course, is that God, is 
the creator of the universe. Therefore, Genesis doesn't answer the questions how and when. The scientific question. Genesis answers the questions who and why. The theological questions. The Bible is not a scientific textbook. It's a book of theology. Stephen Hawking, arguably the most famous scientist of our generation, states, science may solve the problem of how the universe began but it cannot answer the question, why does the universe bother to exist? I'm going to end with a story that I, I got out of Nicky Gumbel's book, Searching uh, Questions, uh, Searching Issues. Suppose I wheel in the most magnificent cake ever seen. And I had in front of me various fellows of every academic and learned society in the world. And I picked the top men and I tell them to analyze the cake for me. So, out steps the world's famous nutritionist. And he talks about the balance of various foods that form this cake. Then the leading biochemist analyzes the cake at a biochemical level. Then the chemist says, well, yes, of course. But now we must get down to the very basic chemicals that form this cake. And then the physicist comes on and says, well, yes, these people have told you something, but you really need to get down to the electrons and protons and the quarks. At last of all, the stage is occupied by a mathematician. And he says, ultimately, you need to understand the fundamental equations governing the motions of those electrons and protons in this case. And they finish. And it is a magnificent analysis of this cake. Then I turn around to them and I say, Ladies and gentlemen, I have just got one more question for you. Tell me why the cake was made. And in front of them stands Aunt Mathilda, who made the cake. And Aunt Mathilda in the end says, I will let you out of your misery. I've made the cake for my nephew Johnny. It's his birthday next week. You see, all the scientific analysis can tell us so much about how and when God created the universe and their discoveries are mind-blowing. But they will never be able to tell you why or who 
created the universe. For that, we need the Creator Himself to tell us. 